<laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Spilling the Scoop with Papa Zoo. We're coming to you live via Zoom. We got Alex Yogamutz, Guidi Zupancic here in Nashville, Tennessee. We got Papa Zoop up there in Indianapolis, Indiana. And we have a special guest in Tony Manerich coming out of Scottsdale, Arizona. I have no way to know if this is true or not, but I think those two guys collectively could lift Alex up over their head 7,496 times. We're looking forward to this episode. Hopefully this will be a great escape for you guys during the quarantine. Let's get at it. We're going to you live. All right. All right. It's great stuff. Hey, Tony, it's always uh, always good to see you. And it's, it's been so long since we've talked to each other and since we saw each other. I wanted to hold a conversation the day before yesterday when we planned this to not let any of the cats out of the bag and right. just go ahead and let them all out here. So, right, uh, because the cats were coming out of the bag, the conversation would have went for hours. That's exactly right. Oh. And, uh, Alex, just as a little bit of an introduction to Tony, Tony uh, was, there's no question, coming out of college, he was a phenom that, uh, uh, that there was no measurement of, of anybody like him. He ran a 4.6, uh, four, was that it, Tony? Yep. at 320 pounds. So he was faster. That His draft class that came out was Troy Aikman, Barry Sanders, Derek Thomas, Deion Sanders, and Tony was the second pick of that draft. So uh, uh, a big lineman back then, that was unprecedented that something like that would happen. So uh, that's, that's, that's who this guy is, and you're going to learn a lot more about him as, as we talk here. And so it's, uh, it's going to be a fun evening here. Uh, Tony, uh, look, we've got a million stories to share and talk about, but uh, you had you had a, a very interesting career, and and we were talking about music a little earlier off screen. Yeah. You had a Guns N' Roses part of your career, and you yeah. had a Rocky part of your career. Yeah, Rocky the song. Okay, and, right. and I know I know you're a big fan of the movie. Uh, yes, you know, Huge. and and have seen it multiple times, like I have as well. Yeah. But. Uh, Let's talk talk about when you first came out, and I mean, it was a time when you were you amongst that group of people that came out during that time. I mean, Deion Sanders, big time self promoter, somebody that really you know promoted themselves a lot. Well, yours was yours was a wild ride story. Talk a little bit about those days. Well, it was interesting. It was very interesting times. It's times that a lot of people today will they'll be able to relate to it, but it's hard to describe because it was so different. You didn't have any internet. So you didn't have any social media. The, you know, the authority in sports was Sports Illustrated. Yeah. So when Sports Illustrated would come out, like if like they wrote an article, it's like they were like, you know, I'm like the American Medical Association writing an, an article about something. It's like they, what they said was like the word, right? It's like, right. Yeah. So if you get put on the cover, it's like everywhere. And oh. so you're not being distracted also by all these different media places like the internet and social media. And so it could have gotten bigger if it was in present day, but I don't think it would have because, because it was so limited back then. Everybody turned to Sports Illustrated, and then if you're on the cover and they write that big story, it's like it's it's in everybody's face, right? And you were on the cover more than once, correct? Twice, yeah, once for yeah. for good and once for epic fail. <laughs> <laughs> you played both sides of the spectrum. Hey, that, that if was you're the... not failing, you're not in the game. Right? <laughs> That's right. I'm sorry. <laughs> when when you were running when you were running out of uh, 
out of college and before you, you know, you got drafted and everything, you had a, you know, you were kind of a Hollywood, uh, uh, you, you went, you went the California route. I mean, you grew yeah. up in a, on a farm, but you certainly didn't seem like you grew up on a farm. No. And I, what, you know, what was a big influencer and, or even if you want to say I was trying to, I don't want to say keep up with, but I saw what was working and Bosworth, Brian Bosworth was yeah. like a year or two older than me. And all of his, you know, flamboyancy was getting a lot of attention. And and granted, he was older, so he had, had, had so I kind of followed his track and was kind of like, that's getting attention. Oh, linemen get attention when we get holding calls. You know, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like, right. I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna try to, you know, get creative and try to be a little bit outspoken, more so than I would usually be. And but once Sports Illustrated did the cover, it just took a like a, a life of its own because what was said in that subtitle, so the title was The Incredible Bulk, and then the subtitle was, you know, possibly the greatest offensive line prospect ever to come out of college. I didn't say that. Sports Illustrated said that. Yeah, that's a, that, that, that means so, a lot. Right. So it's like, and then everybody just ran with it. And, and it became a snowball that became an avalanche of just like media craziness. I mean, you know, I mean, my whole life had grown up. One of my favorite shows is David Letterman late at night. Right. And then before you know it, they're calling you, asking you, would you be on the David Letterman show? Oh, and I had to be in yeah. So it was really cool, but it was like, wow. I was like, is this real? And then, you know, I would walk through airports and those little, it, it, they're not like airports now where they're shopping malls. But it's like they would have the little um, shops where you could buy like peanuts and, and something to drink. And the whole upper part of the, of the shop was lined with Sports Illustrated. And then they have the magazine section. So like you'd see like my cover across the whole top and I'd be like, wow, like that's when it kind of hits you and you go, this is real. Yeah. Like, it's like every, like this is like I'm in an airport in Detroit or, or it could be anywhere in New York and they're all like everywhere. And I'm thinking, you know, this is something like, obviously life is going to change here. Sure. And, and how old were you at that time? Uh, 21. 21. It's kind of tough to take that uh, in stride at 21, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, now, is. did you have an advisor? Yeah. You did? <laughs> but, Un unfortunately, it was myself. <laughs> <laughs> the man in the glass. Right. It was, it was, in it was a space between these two years. It's a bad neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> I did, but to answer your question, I did have, um, uh, you know what, I, I, I can't say I surrounded myself with good people, although I had good people around me, mm -hmm. and they did advise, and I rebelled against their advice, and, and they, they were guiding me in the right direction, I didn't listen. But at the age of 21, there's a lot of people that don't listen, especially right. if you had that sudden dose of fame did you see it coming N not as big as it was no i did i didn't think it would ever get that big i was like i expected to be i mean as a freshman in college zoo as a freshman in college in 1984 i expected and wrote down my goals on a piece of paper and one of those goals was to be the my draft year whether it was a red shirt whether i was red shirt or not whether it was 88 or 89 was not 
not to be like the goal wasn't to be drafted in the NFL. The goal was be to be the number one player taken in the NFL draft my draft year. That was that when was you were a freshman. That's like that was when I was a freshman. For 2020 now. <laughs> Right. And so I still consider it a success or the goal was achieved because of circumstance. Dallas needed a quarterback. If Dallas had like a superstar quarterback that was younger or in his prime and they needed an offensive lineman, I may have been the first player taken. If they needed a running back, Barry would have been the first player taken. Sure. You know, know, Derek or Dion. But um, so I still considered it a success. My roommate had laughed like he didn't laugh at me maliciously but he laughed at me like i mean these like are insurmountable goals and i was like what other kind do you create surmountable ones (laughs) right it's like (laughs) i want to create something i mean if i have a goal i mean i mean yes i want to make it very very difficult to achieve and that's what will keep me focused and driven day to day because it's rinse and repeat rinse and repeat and and not just rinse and repeat but rinse and repeat the right way Mm-hmm. Right. And a little bit better. When did, when did you really fall in love with the weight room? Oh man. Was 11, it when you were in high school? 11 before high school. Really? We were lifting in my friend's basement. He built, he built like lat pull down machines in, in, in high schools, like a welding shop. Sure. Like they have like the tech part of the school. Yeah. He built stuff from scrap metal we put it in his basement of his mom and dad's house and the basement floor was dirt. Really? Yeah. And, and we like lifted that way after the two biggest influencing movies were Rocky and pumping iron. Yeah. yeah. With you guys building out entire gym equipment in our last uh, episode, Papa Zoop talked about, he built his entire uh, gyms like facility out of iron him and his dad did. Yeah, but I didn't count on that. I got out of college, and I, w- I wanted to start a gym. My dad was going to be my partner, and uh, I thought, you know, he could pitch in for some equipment, you know, and I'd work hard to pay him back and stuff, and he said, well, the equipment's going to be delivered uh, tomorrow, and I said, really? And so I was waiting at the, you know, empty building in, a, in the back of this shopping center, behind the, behind the shopping center. A semi pulled up and just dumped a bunch of steel on the ground. My dad was a welder, so we built everything in the gym. It still exists somewhere right now because they couldn't have my mind. they yeah. couldn't have taken it away. But it that took us months to do. That's priceless. That's priceless. Right. That's priceless experience. <clears throat> it, it really was, and it was. Uh, I have no mechanical ability whatsoever, so right. I was holding pieces together while he was while welding. He was welding, right? Yeah, but it was uh, it was interesting. Well, back on your. Uh, you know, on, on that journey when you were, uh, when, when you got, got in between your, your drafted year and, and your senior year, that's mm-hmm. when you really had some, uh, you, you had some, some great times. I, I mentioned mm-hmm. guns and roses. You yep. spent time with guns and roses, yep. correct? Yep. Yep. For about, a, uh, there was, you know, in the sports illustrated, it talks about, that's what I listened to. Like, that's what I was listening to. That was 1987, 88, 89. Right. So yeah. They, they had already made it big, like they were and still climbing. Well, their manager had called up and said, the guys really want to thank you for PRing them in your article because Sports Illustrated reaches a lot of people. Sure. And I thought to myself, are you freaking kidding me? Like, 
Guns N' Roses doesn't need my PR. I mean, they're they're like huge already, and they're like running and gunning like, like on their way to success, like nobody saw. So then they then he was like, they wanna you know send you a jacket, they wanna send you all the stuff, and then they want you to come to a concert and stuff. And then you know I had moved to Cali, and they mostly lived out there, and they they played. They were already too big to play at the Rainbow, which was like a smaller venue on in hollywood um more intimate kind of a cool place to go to watch bands because it's not uh -huh. huge right yeah. but um but yeah i got to run and gun with them no pun intended for about a month and it was fun it was fun they were they, they were i mean talented they were talented you know and there was a lot of a lot of the stuff that you read about was true a lot of the stuff you read about is so like manufactured and just embellished did it like change your perspective when like your heroes then decided to thank you? Like you're in that position where Guns N' Roses is thanking you. Yeah, it did. It did. You know, it, it did change my perspective, but I still, you know what? It was, it was weird because I've had different experiences with your question mm -hmm. and it's a great question. And with Guns N' Roses, that respect got even stronger after meeting them. Yeah. And and seeing like what they really are. Like they're they're not trying to be something they're not. They're like what you see is what you get, right? And I love that about people. Because if everybody likes you, you haven't met enough people. You know, it's <laughs> kinda like if every single client that you have is happy, you don't have enough business. Mm -hmm. Right. It's it's kind of like that thing. So now I've met like like the David Letterman example. I was a huge fan growing up, and then they want me on that show. David Letterman was awesome. I mean, he was absolutely awesome. Um, but there was somebody, and 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 this is funny because this is now way later in years. That probably happened about twelve years ago. So this is like you know probably two thousand seven, two thousand eight. And I don't even know if I should say the gentleman's initials, um, Deepak Chopra. Um, but Devon Chopra has a, a book signing. You turned me on to him. That's yeah, right. right? Yeah. I mean, he his books helped me a lot. Like certain books, I just didn't apply. But certain books that he had, seven like seven spiritual laws of success. I mean, those are basic fundamental principles that are great for anybody. Um, but a lot of his stuff did help me. And then he was gonna he was doing a book thing here in in Tempe at a smaller bookstore. And this is when bookstores were huge, like Barnes and Noble were like, it was way before like audiobooks became popular. So there was only a hundred tickets to get his book and to get in line for him to sign it. And, um, and they didn't, they weren't even charging for the tickets. It was just the first hundred people to show up. So, really? yeah. So I got there because I was, and I just, all I wanted to do Zoop, I mean, you know me well, all I wanted to do was say, meet him, shake his hand, and say, you have no idea how much your information has helped me in my life. Mm -hmm. And when I got up there, it was my turn, you know, because they keep one person goes up at a time. He sat there, he signed my book, and he slid it back to me. He never even looked up. Oh. Really? And I thought to myself, the only phrase that came to my mind was practice what you preach. Yeah. That's the only phrase that came to my mind. And all I said was, thank you, sir. And I walked away. 
And man, you talk about disappointment. Oh man. I was so disappointed, you know, but I have that being said, and he has helped me. I mean, you know, by reading his books and I'm not saying don't buy his books. I mean, he's, but that experience, I wish I never would have met him now. It's a different kind of perspective change. Yes. And I have to take into account the fact that, you know what, he could have been having a tough day. You know, you never know what was going on in his life. You never know what was going on in his life. And I was like, so, you know, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. So, I mean, me mentioning that story, hey, listen, that's a real story. And that's not dogging him. That's, I'm just telling you the truth. He probably signs, I mean, throughout his career, hundreds of thousands of books for people at sessions. But you know what? He signed up for that. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, it's, so it's, so that was a disappointment kind of thing. Um, but I've had such cool experiences. Like the best stories are like the ones in, you know, not to sit here and blow up Zoot, but like the things that stick with you your whole life. Right. And, and, you know, I'm 53, so I'm not a spring chicken, but I'm not 93. And, you know, it's like a lot of the experiences I had with Zoop in that three-year, four-year, three-year period at Indy, and really almost like you could say two-year period because you went from the weight room to the front office part, the public relations part, like those two years were crucial in my comeback because Zoop had me do things in the weight room that I didn't think were possible by me anymore. And uh, and I remember paying the price with the... Uh, the- <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get into that, let's hop into like kind of what what sparked all of this. Um, so Mama Zoop actually sent us like four packages full of just photos, old articles, and John and I found an article from the Indie Star from 1989, which looks like Fred Burns, a uh, boxing promoter, offered you, Tony, $100,000 to fight Dickie Ryan, and then Papa Zoop jumped in and wanted to fight you or Mike Tyson. Like, I just want to hear a little bit about, like, this piece of paper and what went on there. Well, you know, when you sent it to me, that's the first time I've ever – well, I mean, I I may have seen it when it came out. Yeah. But I I don't remember it. And, and, um, And the Tyson thing was legitimate. I mean, Dan Duva and um, Shelly Finkel, who was the promoter, Dan Duva was the manager, like, that wanted to set up the Tyson fight. Right. Five because million. It says it right here. <laughs> Five million right. dollars. <laughs> right. So it was like, because because Tyson was killing everybody. Oh, yeah. He was just killing everybody. And then my Sports Illustrated came out and a bunch of hype came out. So the promoter saw an opportunity. Sure. And it's, it, it, I mean, and I don't even want to compare it to this, but I'll compare it to this. Like, because what I'm going to say was much bigger than what my thing would have been if it would have happened. But when Conor McGregor fought Mayweather, like that's like becomes a little bit en- more entertainment and uh, circus than it does actual fighting. Sure. You know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. MMA is MMA and boxing is boxing and they're both hard as heck and tough as heck and they crisscrossed sports, which made for entertainment. Um, I wouldn't have paid for it. So I went to somebody's house and watched it, but it was like, you know, I was surprised that, that McGregor did as well as he did. Yeah. You know, cause yeah. vice versa, I think Mayweather would get annihilated in the, in the octagon. Yeah. Yeah. It's but two different ball games. You it's, know? Two, it's two different animals. So, yeah. 
so when that was going on, there was nobody to fight Tyson. And so that promoter said, let's, you know, fly out to Cali to see Tony. Let's take him into a boxing gym and see if he's got any fundamental skills in boxing to see if we can train him for nine months to a year and set up a fight and make a lot of money. Everybody make a lot of money. And they did. And, and they said, and I remember uh, Lou Duva and Shelly Piglet. Now Lou Duva, listen, he was the manager of Hollyfield, Oscar De La Hoya. I mean, his, a lot of the guys he had were like superstars. Yeah. So he said to me after, and I was in great shape and I was gassed. Because yeah. it's a different animal. And I'm, and I'm hitting pads that Lou Duva's holding. And Lou Duva's at this time like 60-something years old, right? <laughs> and there I am, 21, in great shape. Just, and he's like, my hands hurt. Like, you know, because I'm hitting the, snapping the pad hard. But I'm also getting tired. At 308 pounds, I don't care how good a shape you are. Fatigue is like not your friend. Right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It don't matter how strong you are. Killer and wrestling and boxing will show that on you real quick. It'll reveal who you really are or how good a shape you are in. Sure. So I always remember Lou Duva saying, "Well, because Shelly Finkel said, what do you think?" And and uh, you know they're taking the gloves off of me and and I'm like sweating like crazy. And this is in a gym in Inglewood, which is right beside Compton. Oh. I I knew about Compton. I didn't know about Inglewood. Inglewood's. There's a lot of badassery there. Let me just say that. I mean, yeah. there's some tough. I think I've heard that in a song. <laughs> there is some tough people there. Um, so, and there's another story there. It's like crazy. But anyways, they they said, Lou Duva said, yes, you do have the fundamentals, and we need about nine months of preparation. And he said, and I, the fight will not last long. He goes, he said. Because if you connect, you will kill him. He says, but if he connects, he will kill you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And he that said, sounds like a fair, fair right. assessment. You know? And I said, well, if that's worth five million anymore. <laughs> well, well, they were offering way less. Like they like they wanted to like the purse for me to be way less. And I said, look, I'm putting my life on the line against maybe one of the greatest ever. Yeah. 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 And, and not many just, of his fights lasted long. Right. And he was nasty. And I'm, was like, I'm, a, and I'm a huge fan. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, so, You're starstruck uh, in the ring. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Can I get your autograph in between? <laughs> like, pop, pop, it's pop, like, I wasn't going to lead with the chin. I knew that. And I, and I, and I, said, to, I said to them, I said, I said, well, I'm not going to get knocked out. I'm going to learn what to do not to get knocked out. I said, I will get DQ'd, disqualified, and throw him over the top rope before I get knocked out. I said, I won't go for the knock. I mean, if I'm starting to get my butt kicked, which probably would have happened. Um, I mean, let's be real, okay? It probably would have happened. Um, unless I would have just been one of those things where I just connect. And if I connect, I was very strong and you know quick. And But that's a different animal. It's a different sport. Right. But you know, in your mind, in your mind, and I know you, you thought that you could do it. Absolutely. You really thought you could do it. And there was no, and that's why you did what you did, you know, in your comeback when you, when you came back to the Colts, because you yeah. had that mindset, that bulletproof mindset that nobody could beat you at anything if you put your mind to it. And I mean, I think that's one of the things I always admired about you. And, uh, you know, I'll never forget. I mean, you had a, you had your experience at Green Bay, and uh, 
you know, the, the first to put a period on the fight thing, that article came out and one of the sportscasters here, sports writers here, John Banch, uh, and I don't know if you remember John or not, but uh, he, he wrote for the Indianapolis uh, Star. Right. And John Banch said to me, we were in the back in the locker room, he goes, hey, what do you think about uh, Mandridge fighting Tyson uh, for $5 million? And I said, you got to be kidding. And he goes, no. He goes, would you? I said, for $5 million, I would fight Mike Tyson and two mad dogs. Quote, unquote. <laughs> and you know what? It's a good thing that the Tyson fight didn't happen. It's a good thing that the fight with Zoop didn't happen because I probably would have got my ass kicked there, too. I was about to say, who do you guys think would have won between you two? I think it Listen, he's a strong man. <laughs> he wants he, to he's answer. A, he's a, he did some stuff in the weight room that made me go, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> like when he took my hundred bucks. <laughs> like, well, you think I, I, I could bench? He goes, he had the hustle going. He was like, for a hundred bucks, he goes, do you think I could bench 405 for 30 reps? And we had been working out together already for probably two months. So, I mean, I saw his form and everything, and it was good. And it wasn't like he wasn't, like, bouncing crazy or nothing. And I was thinking, heck, even if he bounces, 30 reps of 405 is 30 reps. Bench shirt, no bench shirt, I don't care. 405 is 405. <laughs> and the most I'd ever seen him do is, like, 20. And I, and I was like, no, this is a sucker bet. I know it's a sucker bet. I said, no. I got him up to 40 reps. I said, I'll do a hundred bucks for 40 reps. And he's like, you're crazy. He goes, you're crazy. <laughs> and he's like, no way. And like, and he was just reeling me in. He was just setting this like big old wait, sucker wait, wait, up. Wanted to bet on something. This is surprising. He not only won the bet, he did 41 reps. No, he did 40 reps, stopped. Left it on his chest because I was spotting him, and he looked at me. He goes, "Was that thirty nine or 40? And I was like, "F you! You know it was 40. <laughs> and he goes, "Well, I'll do two more just to make sure." And he does two more, and he racks it. And I was like, "I was, I was like speechless. I was speechless. I was like, I've never seen anybody in my life do that. <laughs> to this day, I've never seen anybody in my life do that." We had fun. I remember, go ahead, Alex, I didn't need to catch you off. Oh, no, I was just going to ask, so, like, that is a great example, but I'd love to know, like, on a day-to-day -day basis as a player for the Colts, what was it like training under Papa Zoo? It was like that. <laughs> 400 no. pounds, 40 reps no. every day. No, you know what? It was, you know, there's a difference between, like, uh, I like, in today's terms and and they, and they could be used in in yesterday like when when in our era there's a difference between somebody that trains people and somebody that coaches people like as a trainer right so think about it zoop had to deal with 53 egos from 50, 53 different backgrounds some were lifters some never seen the weight room but were strong as heck and he had to be able to work with all of them right so for him and I, we clicked because we saw the world the same way and we were both lifters. I almost, looking back sometimes, feel that I was more of a lifter than I was a football player. I got more out of it, like as far as like, um, you know, I don't want to say gratitude, but I just got, I, I felt right in the weight room. Well, and, uh, you know, that, that, that brings me to the first time I ever saw you 
you stuck your head in the back of the weight room and you kind of looked in and I knew you were coming and I'd heard all about you. And, you know, I knew, I knew the guy that coached you at Green Bay, Tom Lovat. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, and he, you know, he told me about you and stuff. And when you stuck your head in there, I looked at you and I felt like the, in, in going back to school with uh, Rodney Dangerfield, when he was in that classroom and that, uh, that one, one teacher, the professor goes, I'm going to be watching you (laughs) because I had no idea what it was going to be like. But I think from that first day on, when you walked into that weight room, I mean, we would work out early in the morning before anybody else got there so we could really push it. And I'll tell you what, it not only pushed, I know you were pushing yourself, but it really pushed me as well. And it was a relationship that I'll never forget. And I've never had that kind of a, a workout type relationship with somebody because when you take somebody to the edge, when you take them, when you take them as far as they can go, you learn a lot about that person. That's when they can't hide things from you anymore. That's when they're, you know, when you're running that, that 20th hundred, you know, when, and we say you're doing three more, you know, and you learn people break at that point and you learn a lot about their leadership ability. And that's where, it all kind of made sense to me, everything I'd heard about you. And, you know, at 21 years old, you had this instant fame that, that, that you worked your butt off for. No question yeah. about it. I don't care what you were doing or what you were taking yeah. or whatever. You still had to bust your butt to get there. But in that time when we trained together, it was, that was one of the most enjoyable periods of my time as a coach for 16 years in the NFL. And then moving to the front office, that's the thing that I missed the most is yeah. those types of relationships and you know some of the crazy stuff that we did i mean it was uh it was incredible it It, it was was, um pushed me hard yeah and it was there's like uh it's a respect you can't read about in a book it's a respect for people that you cannot experience unless you do it and and that's like the same experience with like offensive linemen say or a football team that meshes together where the whole team meshes because everybody knows when it's hot out, it's not fun to practice that second practice. Yeah. And everybody pushes. And I remember there was times, like, I knew I pushed hard. Like, and I knew I pushed hard. And then Zoop pushed me even harder. And I was like, I didn't think I could push even harder and go to these other levels that he had pushed me to. And then he'd really throw one in that would just make your head spin. And he'd say something like, you know, after a workout where you're dead and you're just, kind of gathering your thoughts and he'd say stuff like you know do you ever wonder like at times like this after we just did what we did am I really pushing as hard as I can yeah and I was like oh my god it's like because really the definition is if you can still stand after doing legs you haven't pushed as hard as you can. Yeah, that's right. If they're still working for you. If they're still working, you haven't <laughs> pushed hard enough. Right? I mean, you got to be flopping around on the ground like a fish almost to be like, yeah, he did a leg workout today. Yeah. And, t- you know, talk a little bit about uh, the, the, the different things that we do, pushing the truck and uh, things oh. like that. It'd be insane. We would, we would, you know, we're talking about legs. I mean, we would do everything was intense and, um, but one, there was this one leg day and we were doing sets of 30. Now this was on squats doing sets of 30. Now this was one of those things where I had said the zoop and this was probably in the first three months of my comeback. And I said, you know, 
I'm older. I've already played four years, been through a lot. My knees are kind of brittle, you know, no major surgeries, but you know, if where I push heavyweight would probably be best on leg press and then any other kind of leg stuff, squats, you know, maybe go light. And he, and he was like, <laughs> he, he was just like, looked at me like, like I, like I was like, all you could hear is blah, 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 blah. Right. And then he said, okay, you ready to squat? <laughs> so he said, well, we're going to do four sets of 30 with 405 and, you know, to parallel, right. Parallel with your hamstrings. And he's like, we're not going to do that today. He goes, but in four weeks, that's what you'll be doing. And we're going to prepare and build up to that in four weeks. And in four weeks I was doing that. And he had said something that, was like usually there's not a flick of the switch with me usually it's like you know you can observe you can learn from other people you can learn from your own stuff rarely is there a flick of the switch where everything falls into place and it goes ah the aha moment right and zoop said because that day we had prepared for that day and he knew it was a big day like even though it was just a regular lifting it was like tuesday it was tuesday but for me it was like super bowl right <laughs> so so it was a tuesday in march probably and and he goes uh he goes listen man he goes gather your thoughts get the song you want ready that you want playing on the speakers and and he goes and all you have to do is give yourself permission to do it and when he said give yourself permission to do it it was like like my body chemistry and my brain just clicked and said okay and and you did it ripped them out yeah just ripped yeah. them out and it was like and and you know what we did it and i wasn't surprised like i wasn't like high, like we were high-fiving but i wasn't high-fiving like holy shit i actually did it because at that moment before i even started the first set i knew i was going to do it yeah yeah. So it was almost kind of like a, you know, anticlimactic because like I already knew it was going to happen. Yeah. That, and you know, that's the, the rarity of a person like you. I mean, it's, uh, you know, there, there, you were a white, white rhino. There's no question. I mean, you know, there weren't guys that, that loved it nearly as much as you. you know, we had a lot of guys that worked hard during that time yeah. when you were there, yeah. but, uh, they didn't, they didn't, uh, they didn't live for that that ache and that pain and, and to work through that pain. You know, you, like I say, every day you push a little bit harder. It doesn't happen like that now. They, they don't do that now. They don't ever get tired for that second practice. You know why? They don't have that second practice. You know, if they negotiate. I'm, I'm embarrassed. Right. I'm embarrassed <laughs> for the league for that. Yeah. That, I mean, two a days were, uh, you know, and I'll never forget a situation the players, we we went twelve two a days in a row with Ted Marcher Broda, one, one of my very favorite people in the world. Okay, uh, and he had we we together came up with a saying. It was whatever he said, you added and then some, and we kind of took that theme throughout the entire season. And I'll never forget they were we were on our twelfth two a day. A couple of guys came and said, "Zoot man, you got to go to coach and talk to him. He's." we're dying up here. You know, we're, we're getting hurt. We're dying, you know, hamstrings are sore, blah, blah, blah. So I went to Ted. I said, and Ted was like going to your grandfather. Right, right? Right. That guy, you know? And I said to Ted, I said, Ted, you know, the players are really tired. And, uh, you know, I, I noticed in the weight room after, you know, we had that weight 10 outside. And I said, uh, yep. they're tired, they're achy, they're hurt. And he's going like this, you know, 
you know, all the buy signs. I mean, all he's buying it. I mean, I'm thinking, yeah, but I'm, I'm going to convince him here. And, you know, I'm on the player's side on this one because right. we were tired of the hell right. too because right. it's too late. And, you know, he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I said, so what do you think? And he goes, I don't think so, Zip. <laughs> we're going to go two more. He goes, if it was more a veteran team, we might do it. But he said, but I think we need two more two-a-days. And, I mean, he was pushing out on the field the way we were pushing in the weight room, the way we were pushing in the off-season program. So we meshed. He and I meshed together in our our thought process very, very well. But there weren't too many guys that could go 100% all the time. And you were one of those guys, and that's, you know, that's why when – thought about talking to somebody about, uh, you know, we're talking about training. Alex and I have talked about different types of training, but, uh, you know, and I know you do hot yoga and I'll let her get to that here in a a minute, but you know, those times, those days, those early mornings, those times when that, that loneliness and and that, and that aloneness and you had to beat yourself and that's always the the key element. I mean, you've got to beat yourself. Nobody, is right. as tough as you are to beat, right. you know, when you can beat yourself and you so can control true. yourself, that's, that's the ticket. I don't care if you're in sales. I don't care what you're in. You've got to be able to beat yourself and nobody can touch you. If you can do that. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's the truth. And, and you remember, do you remember the running? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I was like, you know, balls to the walls with the running too. I, I was like, I, I have nothing to lose. So if I rip a hamstring or if I tear, I don't care. It'll be going full speed. And I, I mean, you remember I was running, we were running, we would run like 12, 100 yard sprints. This yeah. was like early in the off season getting ready and it would be built up and get harder and harder. But you remember I started running against linebackers. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember some some of these guys and it wasn't, and you know what, part of it was, I mean, part of it was I was athletic and was, I was blessed that I could run. The other part was I want, I think I wanted it more. Like it was like, I had something to prove not to them or the Colts or to the, I had to myself, I had to prove it. Sure. You know, and it was like, because I remember Trev Alberts, you know, bitching at me going, quit freaking running so fast because I have to be ahead of you. Because right? <laughs> yeah, I'm a linebacker and I weigh 230. Right? Yeah. <laughs> no. And I, and I was just like, I was just like, I'm just happy to be here. I'm, 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 I'm happy that somebody gave me a chance because that's all I needed was a chance. And, I'm, and, you, I'm, and you know, you were humble and because I think your whole experience of your first years in the league and, and the times that you had and the, you know, the breakdown that you had, you were humble coming back in. You were actually worried at the beginning about making the team, yeah. let alone, let alone becoming a pro bowler or having several years more of a career. Cause you, you know, when people sit out as long as you sat out and then come back, that's not, that's, that's unheard of. Yeah. It's not the, it's not, it doesn't happen often. It's possible, but yep. it doesn't happen often. And, uh, I was well, it's, it's possible. I'm looking at the possible right, right there. You know? I mean, yeah. what I'm hearing is just like incredibly self-motivated, which can be rare in general. And so it's like to be able to make a comeback like that, it's like you, you do have to be fighting yourself. Like you have to be the one who's motivating yourself because nobody else is going to do it for you right now. Correct. Exactly where did right you, 
where'd you go, Tony? Where did you go inside to make that choice to come back and do that? What, what, what drove you to do that? What drove you to get back in? Okay. So I left, I put myself into drug rehab in March 23rd of 1995. I was in there 17 days and I walked out of there. This was in Detroit. I walked out of there. I was like 255, just and just beat up like emotionally, spiritually, physically. Hadn't lifted in three years, and I started. Um, it, it, here's a little funny story: is my counselor, because you get assigned a counselor for the time that you're in there. So my counselor was a lady I would see every three days as a one-on-one session in the treatment center because I was inpatient. Um, so I probably met with her like four or five, six times. So at the end and the last meeting, they wanted me to stay for 30 days. And I was like, I can, I only have the money for 17 days. And they were, you know, they were like, well, we're, your insurance will pay for it. And I said, I don't have insurance. I'm paying for it. <laughs> right? But she said she had made a plan, which was perfect because that's how my mind works. So with a plan on a paper and everything. And, and she said, these are the things we, that you need to do when you leave to give yourself the best foundation and best chance for continued sobriety and, and uh, you know, a long, happy life or a long life of giving yourself the best chance. So she did throw in this little caveat and it was a very little one, but it was big to me. And she said, and because of your past and being an athlete at, Michigan State and being drafted by the pros and being a pro football player and all this stuff. She's like, so you've been in the world of sports and athleticism and workouts and stuff. She was very good. She was like, let me make this crystal clear. She said, it's not going to hurt your sobriety if you choose to go, you know, pick up jogging or weightlifting or whatever. Um, Like that's going to make you feel better about yourself physically. And she said, but don't, be mistaken. That's not what's going to keep you sober. Okay. So what I heard was I totally get it that that's not going to keep me sober. What's going to keep me sober are these fundamental, these 12 steps and these other fundamental things. But the thing I heard was work out like a maniac seven days a week. <laughs> and then you had <laughs> So I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but at six months, at six months of sobriety, Think about it. Six months of sobriety, I was 300 pounds with no juice, no nothing. And I was working out five, six times a week because I loved working out. Right. And, and at that point was the first time I had a thought that I could, that I would maybe, maybe I should try to go back and play and try to make things right. Or because some of the things I made so wrong, you couldn't write. But there were a lot of things that I could make right and, you know, leave a good taste in my mouth when I leave and then, you know, retire on a good note and salvage something out of a career. And because I was like, I'm not sure if I can get to 300 without the juice. And there I was six months later, just through good sleep, working your ass off, doing the right things, eating right. I was at 300 pounds. And you were, like I said, a white rhino. And then, and then what? What trigger did you pull to get back into the NFL? How did that work? As far as like getting a workout? Yeah. Getting, well, a, getting my an opportunity. A, well, my agent at the time was the same agent that I had always had. And he, he, I hadn't spoken with him in like three, probably three years. And I said, to him, I called him up and, and think about this. The last time he saw me, I mean, my eyes were half closed because from all the opiates, yeah. <laughs> you know, swearing and stuff. 
So I said, you know what? I think uh, I didn't say anything about getting sober. I just said, I, I think I'd like the, I, I said, no, I, I don't think I know I would like an opportunity to work out for a team to come back and play. And he was like, okay, before we take this conversation any further, I need to see you physically. I need to see you. And he was in Cleveland. So I was in Traverse City. So it was like a seven, eight hour drive. So I was like, yeah, all right, I'll come down. And I drove down there and he was like, who's this? He's like, <laughs> he's like, this is the guy I knew in college, right? And he was like, you know, I was happy. I was like, things were going well. And I, then I, and I told him the whole story, you know, and he said, he said, okay, he goes, well, he goes, I'll do my best to, to try to get you a workout. And I got on, so listen to this. So Ray Rhodes was under the Holmgren regime in Green Bay. And a lot of head coaches became head coaches under that Holmgren regime. Sure. That was my last year there. And so my agent puts the word out that I'd like to come back. He calls a few places. There, there's a scout for Philadelphia because uh, Coach Rhodes was the head coach of Philly. Mm -hmm. There was a scout from Philadelphia flying from California back to Philly and had a seven hour layover in Cleveland. And they said, if he can get to Cleveland, we'll work him out at this little Christian community college in like the North suburbs of Cleveland in, in the basketball gymnasium. Mm -hmm. And I was like, heck yeah. Like, cause my agent was like, you know, do you want to drive on your own dime, pay for a hotel on your own dime and do it? And I'm like, hell yeah, I do. I said, do you know the nonsense that I created? I said, but, and, and think about it, six years prior to that, I was calling my own combine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, it was like, so it was like when I was driving down there, I was laughing at myself going, you know, God has a sense of humor because he's laughing at you right now going, look what you put yourself in. <laughs> right. So I was just grateful to have the opportunity to work out for this scout. And I work out for this scout and this scout goes, where have you been? Because like your drills are good. Like everything that you've done. And he had me do old line drills and he was a scout for all positions. So he reported back and I just told him, I said, you know, I said, I, I basically made a long story short. I said, you know, I had drinking and drugging problems and got sober, got, getting my stuff back together and want to come back and play. And he's like, well, you're physically, he goes, you're, you know, you qualify. Um, he goes, but obviously I got to report to coach Rhodes and, and I'm sure he'll probably want to have you come out to Philly for a workout. So I said, yeah, I said, listen, I, I'm grateful even that you guys took the time to give me this workout. So he, they said that they would call me in a couple days. The next day, Pete Ward calls me and says, really? yeah. And says, uh, actually, I'm sorry. It was Ron Blackledge that called me. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Blackie. And, and uh and said hey we wanna we wanted uh work you out so obviously you know word had gotten out that i had a good workout with philly and i said you know it was great to hear from him because the last time i saw coach blackledge he was the head coach at kent state recruiting my brother really yeah, yeah. so i was having like lunch at this little tavern italian place in kent ohio and i was in eighth grade with coach blackledge and my brother <laughs> and that's the last time. And then he ends up being my old line coach in Indy. Yeah, that's incredible. So, so he says, no, we want to work you out tomorrow. And I said, tomorrow? I said, he goes, yeah. He goes, can you do it? And I was like in a position where I was like, absolutely, I can do it if you guys can get me down there. 
you know, or, or I'll drive down to Indy, whatever. He's like, no, we're going to fly you down. So he goes, I'll have a guy call you. Pete Ward calls me and um, he sets everything up. Next morning I flew out down there. Um, Clyde, you know, worked out, worked out. Sure. Clyde worked me out. And then Bill Tobin, um, you know, Lindy had GM. just gotten the yeah. head coaching job from yeah. coordinator Ted. I think it was retiring. Yeah. And then the trainers that I had a great workout ran uh, like a four, seven forty. And they were all like, even, especially Lindy, cause Lindy saw me in, in, in green Bay when I was yeah. a trainer. And Lindy was like, Where the, what the heck? Like, this is the guy we drafted in green Bay. He's like, what happened? And I was hundred percent transparent with all of them. I said, look, this is what happened. Everybody was so focused. Yes, I took the steroid. I said, everybody was so focused on the steroid part. I was happy about it because they were missing the real problem, the alcohol and painkillers I was taking every day mm -hmm. and abusing every day. Because they were like, well, he's diminishing because of the steroids. Well, I've taken the steroids enough that I know if you lose 10 or 15%, you're benching 585 or 600 you're still pretty strong after taking steroids. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> and you can yeah. still play in the NFL. Yeah. So, you know, the deterioration that happened was part of it, like a spoke in the wheel of it was, yeah, the steroid and probably more the psychological effect of the steroid use than the physical effect, but all the opioid abuse and all the drinking abuse um, in Green Bay when I was there. And, and there was a lot of people that did try to help me there, but um, I, I just, again, I had, wasn't listening to anybody and and uh but i was transparent with everybody there for that indie workout and then clyde came back into the locker room because i was getting out of my grays and i just showered and was getting ready to catch a flight back to traverse city and clyde goes oh, okay so they want to sign you to a two-year deal first year minimum wage second year x amount and it was like the matrix everything went slow motion man really <laughs> i was like are you freaking like I was like are you kidding me it's like 11 months ago I couldn't get off the couch that's a great story that is a and great here story. I was 11 months later and employable again yeah well the the mental fortitude and, and the guts and the strength it took and, and, you, and you had to do it by yourself that's yeah. the that's yeah. the lonely part of it you know that yes. most people can't handle most people yes. can't beat yeah. That's why, you know, it's, it'd be so far, so easy at that time to fall off the wagon. If you would have yep. gotten a, you know, if you'd have gotten a negative experience there, but right. I mean, you turned that into a, yep. you turned that into a dream. You know, I turned it into, I have nothing to lose because they've called me every name in the book, the media. I don't know what else they can call me, but if they want to have at it, I've already been on the cover for being a bust. So say whatever else you want. It does, I have nothing to lose. There's nothing. I have not, nowhere to go but up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then this is where it became crucial because I didn't even, you know, it, it happened obviously for a reason. But to have Zoop as my strength coach was looking back. Even then I realized that after my first year of making the team and playing part of that, the second half of that first year, I realized how crucial Zoop was in my comeback because he was a lifter. He made me believe things. He knew what to say to me because he knew how I thought. I thought like he did. And, and then that second year was even, I was like, second offseason is going to be even better because I'm going to think of shit that's going to like just grind him to the ground. Right? 
<laughs> and he's sitting there thinking the same thing about me. <laughs> we about almost killed each other, oh, you know. And, yeah. <laughs> but it was again that it reveals who you are as a person. When everybody can be happy when everybody's healthy and the money's flowing. Yeah. How everybody's you, a hero yeah, when it's seventy and yeah. sunny. How do you act when you're supposed to shelter in place and your money business is losing money? How do you act then? Right? Yeah. Do, they, do all things fall apart? Or do you be like, hey, you know what? Yeah, this sucks. But what can we do about it? And what kind of opportunities can we get here to create business? Or what opportunities can we get here to help other people? Yeah. And that's what, you know, that's what the world's going through right now. And have never gone through anything like this in, in our lives. And, yep. you know, you, you left football and I think you, you left it with some satisfaction and, oh, and, uh, yeah. and you, you know, you achieved things that, you know, most people couldn't possibly achieve. I don't know another story like your story that, that went from where it started to where it, where it ended and all the, the mountains that you had to climb in that time. And now you've got, uh, you've got a thriving business in, uh, in, Arizona and you're a photographer. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. You know, it's, I never, I was one of those kids in high school when you had to take art class, it was miserable because you had to take art class, right? <laughs> I was like, I don't see the abstract in this or, you know, throwing paint and stuff. And it was, but there was always the creativity when I look back about stuff. Like we would take, I remember my brother and I in high school in Canada where football is not nearly as big as it is in the U.S., we would take our helmets home and we had suspension helmets uh-huh. like construction hat, like the suspension, there was no padding. <laughs> so we would take those helmets home. We would, we would unscrew the cages. We would do a John Scott job, right? Yeah. So we would un- undo those cages and we would paint the cages, the color of the school and then paint the helmet, the other color that our school is. Uh-huh. And, and so when I think about, that we did stuff like that. Like that's a creative person that does stuff like that. And, and it, it transferred. And it transferred as years went on and years went on. And then, you know, the, the biggest catalyst was the SI cover. And it, it was the actual shot on the cover because I asked the photographer, because he was taking test shots and it was Polaroids. It isn't like it is now when you just look at the back of the camera. Right. And he took the test shot and that was on Venice beach. And he's like, okay, he goes, and he was telling like, he had like six assistants and he was like, okay, we just got to wait 10 more minutes for the sun to set a little bit more to get the perfect light. And I said, do you mind if I take a look at the Polaroid to kind of see what you see, like what you're capturing? Cause I, and I'm sitting there probably thinking about, am I sucking my gut in enough? Am I twisting? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he shows me the picture in the Polaroid and there's like these, all these like shadows wrapping around the one side of me and I'm going, it's freaking bright out. How, how do you do that? It fascinated me. Uh-huh. And it was really, so it's really the light and the shaping of the light that fascinated me. And obviously, and then I chose, cause you can, do that with painting Van Gogh and, and all these people that, that do did great paintings. I mean, they were doing like Rembrandt lighting is so iconic, but he was a painter. He wasn't a photographer. Yeah. yeah. Rembrandt lighting today is some of the best classic, most epic lighting that you can do if you want a certain beautiful or stoic look. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's something I love to do. And, I have an acid test for stuff like, how do I know I'm doing what I love? 
I, lo- I lose track of time. Mm-hmm. That's when I know I'm doing something I love. I looked at a lot of your uh, photos on your website and on your Instagram, and it looks like you also photograph a bunch of athletes right now. Is that kind of like your main focus or what, what's your favorite kind of um, photography to shoot? You know, if, if uh, the reason I photograph a lot of athletes, probably one of the reasons is I, I, my history is being an athlete. Mm-hmm. And then I shot for the NPC for seven years down here, their, their bodybuilding and fitness shows. So those are all athletes, right? Because you would have bikini competition in there, everything from that to figure to, you know, um, uh, physique to men's physique to bodybuilding and all everything in between. So, you know, we'll have shows of two or 300 people. That, well, there's two or, two or 300 athletes. And some of those want to hire you for a studio shoot because they want creative stuff done. So a lot of that comes from that. My favorite stuff to shoot is would be a demographic between say 50 and 100 years old, uh, men or women, because they they tell a story. You could take a picture of them, and they're if if you can build rapport with them, Mm -hmm. and if you can get them to trust you, and if you can let them be let themselves be vulnerable or let themselves give themselves permission to be vulnerable, mm-hmm. you will get the most epic pictures that they will just be jaw dropping to those people and you know to myself because when people, because people are surprised at photo shoots when I, I shoot, like when, if it's, you know, even if it's regular, like regular fitness stuff for business where I'm like, look, be yourself is the most important thing. Be yourself, be who you are. Don't try to be something you're not. I, if I see something, I'll direct you. I can direct you totally, or I can just let you run with it and I'll just shoot. And if I see something, I'll just say, do this or do that a little bit more. And so I'm very flexible to work like on how to work with a person. I can read a person pretty good, but the people that are 50 or older, especially once you start getting into the 60s and 70s and 80s. Be careful now, 60s. I'm, I'm there. <laughs> Each wrinkle tells a story. Those are the ones with the wisdom. Right? <laughs> Those are the ones with the stories. Those are the ones that have stories screaming off of their persona without them having to say a word. And yeah, It sounds like you need to go to Scottsdale for a, for a, a photo <laughs> shoot. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's uh that fills the void like that's what is like like obviously i mean i know what fills the void i know what runs this person you know it's like who i choose to what i choose to believe in and who i choose to call god and i'm not going to make this a god thing but it's like but that fills the void on the human connection thing Mm -hmm. it's like uh and it could you know it's like it could be a 80 year old woman and it's just like, I'd rather shoot an 80, I mean, I don't want this to be the headline, but I would, <laughs> a lot of times I'd rather shoot an 80 year old woman or 80 year old man than shoot a 25 year old perfect female body that is confident and still knows what she's doing and is grounded and everything because I've just gotten so used to that. It's like, I want the stuff that pulls at your heart and pulls at your soul, right? And, and like capturing that stuff is just phenomenal. And I think a lot of that resonates, like I'll compare a lot of my own personal life experience to what 
they are showing in their lack of expression or their expression or whatever words I use because there are certain words I'll use and you know there's women or men down here that I shoot for their business whether it's real estate whether it's fitness and I'm like constantly talking about approachability you have to look approachable in this picture if people see it online they're gonna see it for two seconds and they're gonna ask themselves not consciously subconsciously do I trust that person and does that person look approachable and is that somebody I would send my mom to sure if you yeah. can make them if you can capture those emotions in a picture for somebody that has like a small business or a business that's what we want yeah. we want like I mean how many times like that's the acid test how many times next time notice when you're going on Instagram going on your phone like this and when you stop and you go back up one or two pictures like whatever picture that that stopped you in your tracks, that's the kind of pictures I want to take. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The ones that stop you in your tracks, not the, okay, boobs, 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 but you know, <laughs> a guy's abs, you know, this, that. Like cool. And you get the photo from behind of their body. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like a girl's like, look at, I did curls today with my hair and like, there's this little curl over hair and the rest is cleavage. Uh, yeah. And it's like, come on. I mean, it's like, we get it. I get it. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> there's websites for that lady yeah, <laughs> you know? that's, right. that's right well so, you uh and you continue to uh, you know we talked uh offline you continue to work on your fitness you continue to lift you continue to you're doing yoga and, and alex is uh, uh she's a uh, an instructor in several yeah. different types of yoga and expert yeah what kind of hot yoga or yoga do you do um you know, I, I can't use the phrase. Well, I mean, I mean, the place I go to um, is awesome. Like, I love it. And it's basically similar to a. It's a hot yoga uh -huh. and it's 26 or 27 poses. But I don't want to say the name yeah. of the of the, you know, quote unquote, where it all came from, because if they claim that that's the kind of yoga it is, they have to pay a royalty fee. Is it really? Yeah. So, like, I, I could even say it and they wouldn't have to pay a royalty fee. But I'm just saying it's basically the same as, as the hot 26 is what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I do that. Um, and I, and it's crazy because like the room's only like 90 degrees or like maybe 90, 95 degrees, but it's like 60% humidity, which I still in my head is like, well, that's not as bad as in Anderson, Indiana. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm telling you what, it's like you're in there laying in there 10 minutes getting ready for class. And I could feel my forearms beating up with sweat. And <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm like, if, if like, if my body's not in real good shape, I'm very modest, right? I will, there's no way my shirt's coming off. So the first time I did hot yoga here, this is probably like 10 years ago, I was in pretty good shape, but still not for what I consider great shape. Still had a little bit of muffin top going, right? Yeah. So, so the, when the lady, the owner showed me this yoga studio and she, and she said, uh, showed me everything cause I had never done hot yoga before. And she had said, and that, but I had done regular flow before. Mm -hmm. And she said, uh, oh, she said, oh, and one more thing, because I was going to do a class that day that was going to start in 30 minutes or something. I had signed up and she had said, oh, by the way, she goes, you know, there's a lot of men that go to this class, too. So, you know, feel free if you want to take your shirt off because it gets hot and stuff. And I saw, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, thanks for telling me. And I'm thinking to myself, there ain't no way in hell I'm taking my shirt <laughs> off. Right. So, Zoop. Two minutes into the class, I'm ripping that shirt off. I'm so hot. <laughs> My modesty went out the window. <laughs> That's right. Survival became the, 
the key at that point. Right. Oh. Here's how I struggle with Hot 26. It le- it is a beast. it's hard. It is it's so legit. Difficult. It's it's legit. And and really, you know what? It's it, it's as hard as you make it. It's as, it's like mm-hmm. everybody qualifies and everybody's at a different level and nobody like you don't feel really judged in there on what you lose your balance on or not. Everybody knows everybody's at a different place. There's days I can hold a certain pose that's hard as heck to hold for 60 seconds. Yeah. And balanced on one foot. And then there's days where I can't do that same pose and like I'll lose my balance six or seven times because it depends where you are emotionally that day or it depends what time of day it is or there's so many variables, right? And it is a very self-motivating practice. Like you can go in there and land Shavasana for the entire class and like that was yoga class and you right. Did that. Right. You know, whether or not you want to get up and push yourself or what your body's telling you to do that day. And I do it. I mean, I really do it because, uh, because there is a, 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 like, to me, there is a spirituality to it or a meditative thing to it. And, and then obviously the physical part of it is I just want good functional quality of life. Mm -hmm. Like I don't need to do shrugs with 495 for a hundred reps. I, you know, it's like, I just need a, a good function. I want a good functional quality of life where I can just hop out of the, you know, chair without like being like, Oh, I gotta get up. You know, it's like, I just want a quality of life. And there's a lot of aches and pains now. And I can tell you it was worth every one of them. Yeah. <laughs> hey, and, and I think if you just ask yourself for permission to do that 495 set of a hundred, I know four, it. four weeks from now, you probably could do it. I, I know, I, I, know I could. I know Alex, I could. Did anybody jump in and uh, ask any questions that you want to ask? Um, I don't. I didn't see anything pop up. I think we're good, unless we missed it. We're going to double check right now. Okay. Um, this is our first Zoom experience here. But I, we usually, I actually had a question during this whole thing. Okay. So when, so you guys obviously, you said you worked out in the morning before everybody else got there and whatnot. So with things like that, did you see yourself more as like workout partners or as like the coach and the player? When it comes to things like that, was it like you were in it together or was like you were on the, I guess, your journey together, but obviously he's still a coach. I, I mean, I, I think we could both answer that question. Like, do you want to answer first? You want me to answer? Go no, first. you go ahead. So like it, it, I'm, I was consciously, consciously made sure that I was crystal clear that this is not a workout partner this is a coach and this is my strength coach. Now I would run through the wall for the strength coach because yeah. of the way he's helped me. And yes, on many levels, it was like a workout partner, but I was never confused about who had authority here. Right. I was never like, you know, like some people wouldn't be able to do that as players. And some people wouldn't be able to do that as coaches. They'd say, you know, you're, you're too tight. You're too close. You've, you've kind of not, um, you, you're not defining that bond of authority anymore or whatever. I, I mean, I could even give you an actual tangible example of it when we did the shrug contest. Yeah. Tell, tell, I mean, tell the story about the shrug so, contest. So our, one of the players, a, a good buddy of ours that ended up working out with us, was not a lifter, but one, I mean, he, w- he was willing to go through pain, right? Uh, I had an acronym called SUAL, S-U-A-L. I'd write it on the chalkboard. It wasn't even a whiteboard then. I would write it on the chalkboard, and it was shut up and lift, okay? (laughs) And so he comes up with this thing. Derek, our buddy, or my buddy, Derek West, and, you know, he was a player. And 
Um, Derek goes, I think we should have a shrugging contest with like 495. And then when you put the big collars on, it's 505. And I'm like, you don't want to go there, Derek. I said, because I know one thing, I can do a lot of them. And I know that Zoo can do a lot of them and he ain't going to quit. He'll die before he quits. <laughs> See, I did draw the line at one point. Like I wasn't going to die, right? <laughs> so Zoo would go to the death. So, so we, we drew like straws on who would go first because there's an advantage. If you go last, you know that you have to do a certain amount to win. And it was more of a gentleman's bet than anything. And I, Derek went first. I think he got like 96 or 97 reps at 505, which was impressive for him because he was not a lifter. But he was, you know, 6'8", 330, whatever. Zoop did – Zoop was next because I got the lucky draw. Zoop did like 107 reps, okay? And I went up there, and I knew I could do more than 107. I just knew. I knew it wasn't going to be easy, but I knew I could do it unless I got like a hammy tweaking or something. I would have to stop. I got to 100, and I was like, I'm blowing through this. And I got to 105, and then I remembered the bench press bet. And I said, zoop, and I held that thing, and it was hurting. But I only knew I had to do three more reps to beat him. And I looked at him, I said, am I at 105 or 110 or 100? And he looked at me like, you freaking, you know, he knew what I was doing. So you know what I did? I did one more rep. So now I was one rep behind him and I racked it. Because I was I like, that. I racked it because I was like, I will not and I cannot do more than my, like my coach, my superior. <laughs> <laughs> you know? That was a good lesson for me right there. <laughs> I should have cheated on the straw draw. <laughs> that was the lesson I took away from it. It was awesome. I mean, it's those are stories that'll stay with me for life. Yeah, that was that was that was a lot of fun. I think we've got another question we here. Do, we do have a couple questions here. Uh, this one's for you, Tony. Who was the most talented NFL player you played against? Um, that I played against would definitely be Reggie White. Um, definitely. Cause I got to play against Reggie White twice when I was in green Bay and you know, Reggie White was at the top of his career and I was half in the bag. So it was really ugly. <laughs> For those um, non-football people, who did he play with? <laughs> he played with Philly. Okay. He played with Philly and then he went to, and then he went to green Bay after I had left green Bay, he got uh, picked up by green Bay and won a Super Bowl at Green Bay. Okay. But um but he's then a Hall of Famer. In, yeah. And but when I was in Indy, he played for Green Bay and Green Bay was coming into Indy 10 and 0 undefeated and we ended up beating them and I was playing against Reggie the whole day. So I had played much better against him. But also, I mean, I can't go without saying he was on the he was still in the top probably 5 defensive ends in the league but he was on the latter part of his career. I mean, he would already been in the league, say 10 years or longer. So he, like he, you knew uh, you could feel it, the strength and the smartness and all that, but he wasn't the Reggie. He was in his peak, right? Just like Mike, he was like the Michael Jordan of defensive ends. I mean, the, and the guy was at the total package. He was incredible. Um, 
best athlete I ever saw in the field ever was was Deion Sanders. Yeah, he could he yeah. could get he after could it. anything. Yeah, he glided. We had a, well, I never forget Marvin Harrison ran by him and his feet were planted and he was stopped. Marvin ran by him so fast and he caught him right from a dead stop. And that's where you would trick quarterbacks because yeah. he, could, he could close that gap so quickly. He was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. You have another question, John? I got one more here for you. Uh, for Tony, what was your favorite football moment? Was it in high school, college, or the NFL? You know, um, there's probably two of them that – are that would there were that are like for me the most biggest ones one was winning the big 10 championship against indiana at michigan state because goalposts came down like to me that was a bigger game than the rose bowl like you know you had seventy thousand people rush the field it's stuff that you saw when you were a kid that you were now part of and that was like incredible because to see goalposts being torn down, you just don't see that anymore. It was just one of those things growing up as a kid you'd see in, in our generation. And then the second best moment for me was um, opening day at Indy. We were playing the Arizona Cardinals. I was not starting. Um, I had made the team um, and I was playing like field goal point after touchdown and then kickoff return. I was on some special teams. But during the national anthem, uh, even though we were in the RCA dome, and even though it was a dome, you know, on opening day they still had like stealth fighters flying over, and and it was like I was about eighteen months sober, and I thought like again like this is so surreal that like like this is really when people talk about miracles, this is a miracle, and then. I remember looking over at Paul Justin, who I'd kind of become friends with in that short period of time. And he looked at me and he goes, those, I go, those jets are so freaking cool. He goes, if they're stealth, why can we see them? Oh my gosh. <laughs> no. it bro- broke up the moment for you. Right? <laughs> but I was like, but to me, like that national anthem on opening day on the comeback, even though I wasn't starting, I had got chosen to be one of 53 players on a team to be in that league again without having to juice, without having to do, and by, by doing it as a, well, I hope as a gentleman and working my ass off and not being a big mouth and an arrogant SOB like I was in Green Bay. Well, I'll, I'll add to that. I think you did it by sheer will. I mean, it was – it was your will. You willed yourself back into that position, and you willed yourself back onto that field. And there's not too many people that can do that. Uh, you know, I I personally don't know anyone with your story of the highs and the lows that came back and did what you were able to do with the veracity that you did it. Yeah. So you know that's a testament and, and, to you. And, and, thank you. And it, and you know I can't. I have to say. I mean, it, it was. I mean, there's no way I could have done it alone. The crew, it was so crucial to have certain people in certain places helping me, like like Zoop, for example, and just being in the right situation at the right time, and and uh, just even getting an opportunity because I had burned all my bridges. And just the fact that somebody gave me a chance was a miracle. And and then you know I was like, I'll I'll be damned if if I you know if 
if I don't make it, it's not going to be because of a lack of work. Yeah, you know, it was going to be because I just wasn't good enough. Well, you certainly proved you certainly proved your point, and uh, you know, I think forged a friendship with me for uh, a lifelong lifelong friends. You know, I told Alex that I was going to give you a call. She goes, "I haven't heard anything because she." I know. I emailed you, and I was like, "Papa, it may just be me and you." And he's like, "Oh no, I just got off the phone with him." And I was like, "Well, that was easier." <laughs> that, that's one of those, and I, I think I said it to her. I said, "Now nah, he's a friend for life." I said, yeah. "He'll call yeah. back." So, yeah, we picked up. Like, we picked up conversation like we were working out yesterday. Yeah, that's, you know? uh, that's very. And, but I had you true. marked. I had you marked, Alex, on my email as red, which when to me red means get back to like. As soon as you can get back to them, get back to them. And I knew. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Tony, one of the things, Tony's, uh, I'm Slovenian, and Tony's Croatian, correct? Yeah. And, and you, you could speak a little bit of Croatian. Listen to how much meaner this makes him spa- sound. Speak a little Croatian. I can speak Croatian as well as English. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you, you I can speak and read it and write it as well as English. Okay, well, um, just say it, say it, give a sentence. Um, uh, ti hoćeš da ja govorim od... Then I just make it to... sound tougher. <laughs> <laughs> if I do, I have to swear. <laughs> you know, I can't speak any Slovenian, just the cuss words, because right. that's what my parents, right. you know, they would cuss at us in Slovenian. Right. So, but but I, every time I do anything, my wife always accuses me, I always go back to a Slovenian accent. If I'm trying to do a Japanese accent, if right. I'm trying to do a Chinese, it always goes back to Dublius, you know, which I just said nothing. Okay. But it sounds like I said something. Right. Right. But uh, I love that. Well, Tony, we really appreciate you coming on and uh, you and I are going to stay in touch. Made that yep. vow. And uh, definitely going to want to see you in person. And Alex, uh, anything else that uh, you had? I got two things. One, I not that I stalked your Instagram or anything again, but uh, I saw you have a dog. Yeah. Uh, what, what's your dog's a, name? And what kind he, of dog? He's got. A, I, I named him a, in Croatian. Um, I named him Medo, which means bear. Okay. Um, he's a Newfoundland. And he's brown. Oh, that's right. That's right. And he's brown. And most, about 20% of Newfoundlands are brown. And 80% of them are like uh, mostly black and white. There is, there is like 1%, a very small, small percent, which they call like bluish silver, but they're very rare. But the brown ones, I mean, they literally look like bears. Yeah. They look like really, I mean, they're huge. He's a good boy is what he looks like. I'm telling you what, he is the best. He is, uh, I don't have words to describe that dog. That dog talks to me by looking at me. And I'm like, it's just like, like there's times where I'm just like shaking my head and I'm just like, this dog's unreal. Uh, the dogs awesome. have five dogs. So they have five dogs. We have Whoa. three dogs. Whoa. Quick, quick story on naming a dog. John uh, picked one of our dogs and it's a, it's a Rhodesian Ridgeback. Oh, yeah. And we asked him what, what he wanted to name it. And he said, I want to call it Bunta. And so he told everybody that Bunta in Slovenian meant the chosen one, which it doesn't. Okay. But that was the premise of naming the dog Bunta. So uh, that, that, was, uh, that was his contribution. Then he got married. He got five dogs and a couple of cats. I don't know what happened. What kind of dogs yeah. do you have? 
Uh, we've got five rescues. We've got a lab mix, a German Shepherd boxer, a terrier nice, mix nice. that's yeah, like yeah. a mid, like 45 pounds, and then a smaller right. terrier that's like a wiry one. Right. And then the latest one that we adopted is a full bull terrier. He is he is doing much better now. He was not treated well before he we got him, but he's a he, his guy. head is bigger than my head. <laughs> yeah, if you can like, imagine that. I mean, he's, he's got the biggest head. Oh my god. <laughs> doesn't look like you should be able to stand. Right. Oh. Jack in the front just has this giant unlevel head. He just does yeah. a lot of traps. He walks yeah, around like that. Right. <laughs> We're going to take him on in a little trap contest. Well, Tony, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah. Alex, yes, thank uh, you. we'll talk later. But uh, Tony, love you, man. And, love you guys. Uh, oh, we'll uh, talk, no, uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you guys soon. for getting on and give me a reason to, you know, like shower and put makeup on during <laughs> like quarantine. <laughs> Yeah, I had to do the same thing. Can you tell the makeup's a little... Uh, <laughs> I just turned the lights down. <laughs> you're, well, you're a lighting expert now. Right, right. Well, I do my best. I try my best. Um, Alex, make sure that Zoop gets my uh, email and or because I want to send him the book that I've borrowed for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I'll exchange the other one that I talked to you about, too. Yes. So. Yes. That's great. That's great. Cool. Thanks again, Tony. Thanks, and we'll talk to you on. soon. Bye, guys. Thank you up. so much. All, All right. right. We'll Good night, you Alex. Night. See you. See you, John. Good night. Bye, guys. Thank you. So make sure to follow us on Instagram at Yoga Mutz, that's M-U-T-T-Z, for all the behind-the-scenes content. And if you could think of anyone that'd be perfect to come on the show, send me a DM, let me know their info, and I'll reach out to them. Uh, final thing, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform for our new episodes and leave us a review to let us know what you think.